Good morning, everybody. My name is Joshua King, and I'm here with my friend, Dr. Cameron Surrey, the Senior Chaplain of the Auckland Catholic Tertiary Chaplaincy, and this is Discerning Catholicism, where we look into the differences between Protestants and Catholics and try to discern what it would take for a Protestant to become a Catholic, and maybe even try to evaluate whether or not that is something I should do as someone who is not currently Catholic, but has a bit of a um, game plan as to how I'm thinking of of discerning it myself. So this whole podcast is about that journey, a little bit about the background, hopefully for, for Catholics understanding Protestants, hopefully hopefully for whatever Protestants are listening, um, an opportunity to either attack me or maybe go on the journey themselves. Mm. So uh, we'll see <laughs> how that goes. Uh, and so today, basically, I wanted to do a little bit of a summary of where Cameron is up to in the book, uh, Roman, Roman Catholic Teaching theology and practice. Theology and practice. I keep thinking teaching and practice. Theology mm. and practice. Teaching, doctrine, theology. It's all the same sort of thing. Yeah. And um, and yeah, just a bit of a summary about that, and then also talk about what is the role of the uh, emotional attraction in, in in discerning anything in life, and and sort of talk a bit about my background coming along through that, and its comparisons to say perhaps somebody who might be getting taken away by a cult, uh, and and to somebody who's doing it well because I think we all don't really think about this too much, and I think it can really play on our minds sometimes. Um, oh, I'm being carried away. Oh, is this true? And mm. what do I calculate things or heaps, or do I go with what feels right, and all of this sort of stuff. So hopefully we'll add some clarity to that as well. We've got 20 minutes, and we've got less than 20 minutes now. Well, I'm hoping. So, yeah, pray for me. before the po- Even though the podcast has already been made, I'm sure your prayers will be effective. And I mean that seriously. <laughs> We'll talk about that theology later, another time. Cool. So before we do start, though, and instru- just go through what you've been uh, encountering, Cam, I wanted to just just throw this out there with respect to some things I've heard about Luther as he was coming into Reformation and developing his perspectives of um, grace and total depravity and whatnot, or notions of total depravity. And I've, I've gotten this feeling that when he talks, and, and I've heard this from Bishop Barron too, is that he really talks extremely passionately, extremely passionately, and sort of like in love with this idea, mm. and it's the idea of grace, and and I, it's it's like it's from what I understand between the the debates between Dominicans and Jesuits, which I'm going to throw in there, so, <laughs> and <laughs> is that Dominicans are really hard on the grace, and Jesuits talk a little bit more about the human component. In, in the collaboration with God, and there seems to be a bit of a dispute there. And what it seems to be is that, like, that what it feels like from all my experience is that the Reformation is going that one step further than just the collaboration with God's grace in every aspect of life to saying we don't have a part at all to play in the process, and, and the grace is so extensive that it's almost like we don't exist. But I don't think that that's necessarily a bad a uh, 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 a evilly motivated thing. You mm. could come out and say, "Well, it's motivated by not wanting to have accountability and whatnot," but I, I, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems, and from I watched this movie about Luther's life. I mean, growing growing up, that was the first introduction I've ever heard, had to Luther, and it was like in my teens, so I was quite well formed in terms of my limited Protestant understanding that I kind of grew up through. And uh, what I did see is that Luther struggled a lot with his sin and struggled a lot with. Uh, how he saw himself and how he saw himself before God. And so this really deeply emotional desire to say that, to kind of 
really dislike the self component and really just be enamored by God's grace component. And you can see this this um, passion and love and, and fear and frustration move perhaps Luther to this place where he's like, I just want to give all the glory to God. And that's a phrase that you hear a lot from Reformed people is, I want to give all the glory to God. It's to God's mm. glory. And it's almost like that, that meme that you hear, well, Jesus is always the answer. It's like, mm. uh, but it's almost like giving glory to God is always the answer when it comes to these conversations. And whether one is aware of it or not, I do think that removing the self and the collaboration from the equation does seem to remove responsibility and moral accountability, which seems to be the rebuke from anyone who disagrees with total depravity in its, in its original form. But I, I think it's not really motivated from there. I think it's just an incidental consequence. But that doesn't mean that incidental consequences don't have effects up upon you. Like, if it's subconscious, if you're not aware of it, it seems to have more of an effect. And I think we talked about this with respect to philosophy and tradition. If you don't understand what these things are in their rawest forms of human experience, you're going to be lost to how it's influencing you. And mm. that can be quite dangerous. Yeah. And but I, I get the point you're making in that these these things are not, first of all, moral, thing, moral issues. So when someone... Um, articulates a doctrine of total depravity, the first thing we should do is not to say, oh, you're just saying that because of these you know, bad intentions that you have. I think, first of all, we should engage it on the level of truth rather than pass it off as some moral weakness. Yeah, totally. And you should really try... And, I, and the thing that I always say in the ministry I work for is in, in apologetics, when you're engaging with someone... I find the most powerful way to persuade anybody is to genuinely try to understand them. And the reason for that is I don't think you can understand anything that isn't true. So, mm. you know, if you're not understanding something, there's probably something broken, either in the communication or with what the other person thinks. And by you asking questions, you're actually helping that person to process through what doesn't work mm. uh, better than anything else you could really do. Yes. So try to ask questions as much as possible. And pray that I would ask more questions in these interviews with Dr. Cam, <laughs> because uh, like, I'm not the best at it, although I do know how powerful it really can be. But the incidental nature of what I think Luther's passion and doctrine is comes out where you hear this quote from him regarding um, sin deeply or sin greatly, but just love God more. And this and that that phrase is really is so confusing with respect to this doctrine. You've got two parts. First of all, just love God more. It's like as if you're doing something, but I thought the point was that you couldn't do anything. So that's kind of confusing in and of itself. But yeah, this whole idea of sin greatly as if, which seems to almost contradict, or seems to contradict Scripture explicitly, because I think Paul talks about... Um, what therefore we have grace, therefore shall we shall we let sin abound? No, never mm. let it be that. Mm. So it's it's how we wrestle with these things, each to our own extent, and I think God gives us the grace to understand to the capacity we are able to, and gives us enough to be able to discern truth, no matter how intellectual we are. Um, it's important to wrestle. Is it that Luther, what he's getting at is that the experience of repentance and coming back to God after falling into sin, um, there's something in that experience where we encounter God in a, a very profound way, right? So it's kind of like Jesus saying, I came to call 
um, not the righteous, but sinners. So we, when we recognize ourselves as sinners and come back to him, then we have this privileged encounter. Um, the problem, it's a bit hard to understand exactly what Luther's motivations were for saying that, but mm. you wouldn't want to contrive that situation. So no. right, I'm going to now sin in order that I might be able to come back. Because, it, because sinning in that spirit wrecks your repentance anyway. Because, you know, you, you've, you've contrived the whole situation. It's not real anymore. It's, um, yeah, I would probably say your repentance after that situation wouldn't be genuine unless you repented from doing that in the first place. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yep. unless you were repenting for saying, I'm going to sin and repent later, mm. and then wishing you'd never even thought of that thing, mm. uh, your repentance would be fake. Almost. Uh, uh, so, mm. yeah. <laughs> I really like, I think St. Augustine says something quite different from Luther, but follows a similar pattern. Um, he says, love, and then do whatever you want. And by that, he actually means that if... Um, that, that if you're truly motivated by love and you, you're, yeah, I guess maybe if you're filled with the love of God, then, um, then the love of God will direct your actions you know, properly mm. and, and direct your desires. Yeah. And so, and, and maybe this encapsulates the, the, the Catholic um, position a lot more that God's grace actually transforms us so that our desires are in line with his will, um, rather than uh, rather than this, there's much more an em- emphasis in Protestant thought on the opposition um, between our will and God's will, which is also true. But mm. um, but hopefully grace um, overcomes that opposition. Mm, mm. I think there's even a verse that there's many verses that talk about the conditions or the cir- circumstances under which God will grant your prayers, and I think that. Is praying in Jesus' name one of those things? Like, yeah, if you pray, in, like, pray in His name, and, and God will. Jesus says that. Ask of anything in My name, and it will be given unto you. Mm. Yeah. So, and I've always taken that to be well. If you're going to ask in the name of somebody, like a, an ambassador comes in the name of the king, <laughs> so you better represent the king well when you pray. And and I guess that's what you're saying is if you do represent the king when you pray or when you act and as you do, mm. then your will is in alignment with the will of the Father. And so, of course, God will act through you. Yeah. And that's just... And I think that extends to, in Catholic theology, that, that principle extends to the saints, isn't it? Once, you're, once you are in heaven with God, you are in perfect alignment with God's will. And so yeah. everything the saints do is, is an act of God through them. Yeah, and it's connected with the Holy Spirit, I suppose. Because yeah, we don't know how to pray, you know, and this is the Spirit that prays in, in us and through us. And, mm. and the Spirit moves us. So, um, so again, it's not by my own strength that I, you know, that I align myself with God's will. Um, but, no. But, but I... But I, I have a certain. I need a certain docility, and then I can be moved by the Spirit. However, it's almost know. like a, in the genuine union between the two, meaning the person and the Holy Spirit, uh, and the knowing of God. Mm. And this, you've you've got all of the marriage and, and sort of notions around that idea. Um, but in the knowing of the Holy Spirit and God, when you become one with God, in that way. Once you're in that space, then then what you do is 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 like God's will, and it's all it's all just beautiful. Like it's mm. there's not many more words left to, to articulate it, but it's like this beautiful outworking of the union of wills and the oneness of us with God, which which I think is pretty cool. Mm. So yeah, so I guess yeah, let's talk about 
Let's talk about your where you you've come across. You've read a bit of the book. You read a bit more today, and you were kind of going on about some of that stuff. But let's just do a quick summary. Sure. The first issue you had was this sort of complete inca- incapacity of man to know God or yep. to to respond to anything God does or His grace. Yeah, I think truth. the way he put it, yeah, was um, fallen man's has no natural capacity for God or for grace. Yeah, and we've kind of really beaten that. Down to death almost. Well, well no one ever I has think, really, but I think we've at least expressed how um, it appears incoherent to me anyway. Um, I mean, I'm open to more light being shed on it, and I'm sure more can be, mm. but I, I don't have the I don't have what it takes to um, to sort of breathe life into that doctrine anyway. And are you are you going to be catching up with this reformed pastor sometime? Uh, hopefully, but there's no no time set at this stage. Okay, but he's he's responded with an interest. Yes, I remember he said he has to read the book and get back into it before he starts engaging. Mm. So that can be something that is easily put off. So I'll be prompting him, and and we'll see. Maybe you need to send him a couple of emails. So sure. when are we catching up? And sure. it, hopefully, yeah. maybe if you lock in a date, it'll it'll set him on a get it done thing. Yeah. But it's first week of uni back, so all of the campus leaders are very, very busy mm. at the moment, uh, particularly with uh, clubs week and um, yeah, a lot of stuff going on. They're coordinating all their first events. There's, there's a lot going on. Okay, and so so what what else? Um, so following on across? from that, uh, I, I read through and something that jumped out at me was how the author agreed with the Catholic... Um, idea of human language, that human, we, human language can be used to speak of God. Well, it's kind of obvious, I suppose. You kind of have to accept that if you're a biblical Christian. Mm. So, um, but I saw, and this is what we discussed yesterday, and I saw an inconsistency there that you, you can't say on the one hand, as far as I see it, human, fallen human nature has no capacity for grace, and on the other hand say, Fallen human language has a real capacity to um, to be used um, to reveal God. Like I don't see how those two things can fit together, because human language and hum- and, and human beings are so intertwined. Mm. Um, I guess at this point I would just be asking, what is language, right? Because mm. it's sort of. I think there seems to be almost an assumption between those two points that language is something separate from humans. Maybe, or it's just not being thought through, <laughs> um, the connection. Because uh, he's not saying language is something separate. It's not like right. that's being thought through. It's just like, well, we know human beings don't have a capacity, natural capacity for God. And then, oh, let's talk about language. And, and it's a different question, and, and the relationship is not seen between these two right. um, things. So... Um, that's really interesting. That's just something that I that I picked up on, and I thought, hmm. I'd probably ask. So this is the sort of thing that I'm talking about when I would ask, "What does that mean? What does language mean?" And mm. this is something I'd probably ask someone like this guy, um, or, the, or, or whoever I'm talking to, and if they came back to me and said, "What do you mean? What does language mean? Language is language." Mm. I'd just be like, you know, that's there's very commonsensical uh, quotation marks way of dismissing and shutting the conversation down and not really 
exploring what people are talking about mm. and it's preventing the exploration of what someone is talking about. Yeah. And that's where I find really frustration comes from. Like the, an ex, another example which I had experienced um, with the same reform pastor is this, uh, when I was asking about what, what does it mean for God to speak? And the response was, what do you mean? Just like speak. What do you, speak is very obvious. And I'm like, but God's an immaterial like being who is not physical. And when we speak, we mean a whole range of stuff referring to our experience of noise and all this stuff. Like, what, what does it mean when God speaks? Mm. And, and the same answer would just keep coming back to me. Like, it just means what it says. God spoke. Yeah. So and, in Genesis 1, when it says God, you know, said... Um, what does that mean, given that he's not, it's not like it's Jesus who's incarnate. Yeah. I mean, it says, Jesus said, well, we know what that means. It's the same as with, when we speak. But when God, um, pure spirit, speaks into the void um, to create the world, what, what does that speaking actually amount to? Mm. Mm. And, that's, and that is what I wanted to explore, because I was trying to explore what is the word? What does word mean in mm. scripture? What does it mean in the language? What does it mean in the concept and context of God? And if you can't even begin to explore these very fundamental core parts of God's nature and the actual imbued throughout the entire scriptures and the notions of scripture, like theology, how then are you even capable of beginning to understand mm. what the authors really meant? Because we often don't mean the common sense. We mean something deeper yeah. than the commonsensical experience of words that we use very, very often. And I would say just thinking about it very briefly, when speech is about, um, you know, manifesting externally what's internal, you know. Mm. I, have, I have an idea or um, something and I want to manifest it, so maybe I want to communicate it. Mm. Or I, I might even be alone, but I want to get it out. I want to manifest it. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear it myself or I want someone else to hear it, then I, I put it into words. And um, so then transformed because suddenly it's it's out there and it can be responded to by others mm. which is not the case when it just remains on the inside uh, the, the other thing is that speech has particular structure and speech is connected with being like intelligible understandable clear whereas say gesture which is another way of manifesting mm. um, what's on the inside isn't so um, structured or um, intelligible necessarily, um, but it, you know, gesture is, a, is another way of communicating, and it's quite a powerful one. Mm. But it, maybe it's not as precise. You know, mm. you, you can communicate a lot with a gesture, but if you want to communicate a very um, uh, nuanced idea or something, you, you have to use words. You can't just. <laughs> No. You know, I can't just wave your arms around. At least you know <laughs> sign language, but sign language itself is based a on, on a it's based based on a on a spoken language. Yeah. Mm. Oh man. Okay. So yeah, that's that's. I mean, I'm wondering how many compounding problems we're going to end up with by the time we get to like <laughs> the fifth and sixth uh, concern. So so if we relate this back to the the problem of fallen man's capacity for grace. Mm. So what, what he's saying, by saying that, yes, human language can be used by God to reveal himself, he's saying that the manifestation of man's interior, which is what language is, well, 
it's the way I'm proposing we can talk about it. Mm. Um, can um, can be used directly by God without changing any of it, because Jesus doesn't create any jargon. He doesn't invent any new words or concepts. Um, he uses that to point to the Father, um, the infinite, unseen, all-powerful, all-loving God. And so that's extraordinary, really. He takes what is an expression of our own interiority, which is where you would think that our sinfulness and our incapacity and our closeness to God would reside most of all. Mm. And, but he still uses all that in order to, um, to reveal his Father. Yeah. So, so there must be a capacity, natural capacity, in, in us, even though we're fallen. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's, that's the thing, the analogy I've always used, so I did electrical engineering at Auckland University, and I, I've worked as an operations engineer, and then I um, have come to ministry work now. But the, when I was there, when I studied that, we learned about communications. And when you're looking, working with any part of communications, you're doing you know, technology, you're working between software and hardware, or any form of communication, you need a sender and a receiver. And the thing, most problems <laughs> nearly always are around the sending and receiving. It's, it's always, um, did the device receive as I intended it to receive my message? And so you've got like a bunch of checks and balances that it has to do in, initially to ensure that it's reading correctly so that the rest of the information that follows is reading correctly. And, and the way that's done is through a language. As we mm. use the word language to refer to the way the sender and the receiver are speaking on the same, same wavelengths. Mm. And so when it comes to, it's, it's kind of obvious. It's like when I'm communicating to a random person, I need to speak in a way that they understand. Otherwise, I'm just babbling like a random caveman as far as they're concerned. Yeah. And often we assume each other, by the words we use, we all have the same definitions, but often we don't. And so we are just like babbling cavemen. But, and this is, and this is the part, is that if God's got a message to convey to us, it's essential that we're able to receive his message. Yeah. And so he either designs us with the capacity to understand him, or he doesn't. And I don't see how the capacity to understand God or to hear and to respond and to have moral accountability I don't understand how all of that isn't just the what it's referred to in what you're talking about, Catholic doctrine, that man does have an innate capacity to respond to grace. Mm. That seems to me to be what that is. It's just basic communication, basic human experience. It's, it's in the foundation of creation. It's part of God's world. It's a natural, normal thing, which we would expect. Mm. But that that whole notion... I don't know if I could even have that conversation with a reformed person. It's, I feel, feel like it would be dismissed as, I, I don't know, like they, I don't think they'd go there. Hmm. Is that, do you think that's an accurate description of, like, do you think that's quite an apt analogy for the Catholic yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think what you just said, yeah, is, is a good way of summarizing what we were just talking about. Mm. For sure. Oh well, I think we've run out of time, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't think we're going to get through uh, the place for the emotion and the emo uh, the journey of, of towards truth or journey towards God. But perhaps we can start the next podcast with that. Sounds so, good. Uh, thanks for everyone coming to listen, and I hope that what we've discussed has been somewhat helpful. God bless.